Amen. Thank you, Tom. I thought I knew something about technology, but I tried to take a picture of that, and I couldn't get it to do anything. So anyway, someone I'm sure knows how to use the QR code, so if you're interested in doing that and you couldn't get it to work like me, then uh, whoever is in the back there, I'm sure they can help us. Well, if I look a little bit disheveled, it was because I got uh, drenched on in the rain in between the services. I had to help my wife put the kids in the car, and um, I'm still drying off a little bit. I mean, I got really wet. I had to get a towel. I'll put it that way. So, uh, but I'm glad to be here with you this morning. Today is Palm Sunday, as you know that. You know, a lot of times in growing up, at least, I don't think this is done as much anymore, but growing up, we would always have palms in church on Palm Sunday. Does anyone have a palm? Did anyone bring a palm with them this morning to celebrate? Okay, none of us. That's fine. I didn't either. But anyway, today is Palm Sunday, and I imagine most of you are familiar with that. Today is the first day of the Holy Week, or Passion Week, as we know it, and so that is what we're going to be focusing on today. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, and I'm going to read for us uh, this passage, chapter 19, verse 28 through 44, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll jump in. So verse 28 says, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying this colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought, to Jesus, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, even as we think about today and think about you entering into Jerusalem. Lord, we also want to welcome you here. And as we prayed earlier, we pray again in this service too, not welcome you the way that we want you, but Lord, we want to welcome you the way that you are. Lord, we don't want to invite you and look to you the way that we think you should be. But today, God, we want to look to you as you really are. And we want to welcome you as you really are. So come today, Holy Spirit, speak to us through these words, through your scriptures, 
and through the Holy Spirit. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, this is the beginning of Passion Week or, or Holy Week. It starts with Palm Sunday. And if you're not familiar with that, I just want to briefly remind you of the way this week, uh, the progression of events that happened in the Gospels during this week. Obviously, today, Palm Sunday, the events that happened, we just read in that passage. But then on Monday, these, this again, this is the time leading up to the cross, obviously, which is on Friday. So on Monday, if we look at the Gospels, we see Jesus is cleaning the temple. He cleans the, clean, clears the temple, cleanses the temple. And then we go on to Tuesday, and he's with the disciples, and he walks past a withered fig tree, and he talks to them about faith and, and how to have faith. But also on Tuesday was when he gave the Olivet Discourse or the, 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 the sermon or the words he spoke on the Mount of Olives. And then the other thing that happened on Tuesday was when G, uh, Judas was negotiating with the Sanhedrin how much money he could get for betraying Jesus. And then on Wednesday, we actually don't have many events. Actually, there's none that we can tell were, were happening on Wednesday. So most scholars say they were probably resting on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, Jesus again staying in Bethany, he sends Peter and John to prepare for the Passover. And that's also the night where he instituted the Lord's Supper and washed the disciples' feet. And then, of course, on Friday is Jesus's trial, the crucifixion, and his death. And on Saturday, he's in the tomb. And on, Friday, on Sunday is Easter, the resurrection. And that's how this week kind of progresses. And I actually want to encourage you, if you've never done something like this before, but each day this week, take time. Try to take time and look at these passages. Read through the Gospels, in particular, this portion of the Gospels, and meditate on Jesus and who Jesus is and what he is doing and how he's carrying himself during these days. Because I think that the Holy Spirit will continue to speak to us after today, but um, we also are having a Good Friday service. Obviously, Easter is a big service on Sunday. Please invite some people. That'll be at 10 o'clock. But then we also have a Good Friday service, and I'd encourage you to come to that at 7 o'clock on uh, Friday night. So Jesus is entering into this week, and what we see prior to the passage that we just read, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells the disciples, he, he says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So Jesus is looking at the disciples and, and he knows what's about to happen. He's not just going to Jerusalem unaware of what's about to go down. He knows what's about to happen. And not only is Jesus coming to Jerusalem, but there are many Jews that are coming to Jerusalem because they're also celebrating the Passover. And if you're not familiar with the Passover, the Passover is a Jewish holiday where the what they call the diaspora all come to the city of Jerusalem. Diaspora means those that were scattered. They come to the city of Jerusalem and they celebrate this Passover week in remembrance of when God delivered them through Moses from the Egyptians. So that's what the Jews are celebrating. So naturally, Jesus, as a Jewish man, he's also coming. And then he tells them, and this is in verse 32 in chapter 18, he said, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. 
So Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He's staying in Bethany where his friends are, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, most likely staying with them. And he's coming into Jerusalem and he knows what's about to happen. He's already told the disciples what's about to happen. But he still chooses to come to Jerusalem. Now, Israel, during this time in the first century, because of the Old Testament prophets, they were expecting a different type of Messiah. They were expecting a different type of king. And I know that most of you guys are familiar with that. Most of you guys have read the Old Testament. But for a moment, the things that we know about the Old Testament and the New Testament, especially the New Testament, let's try to forget them just for a second. Because I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of a first century Jewish person. And what they would have thought was coming to them based on Old Testament passages and Old Testament prophecies. So we're going to look at three scriptures from the Old Testament that describe the Messiah and the kind of Messiah that the Jewish people were expecting. The first one is in Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. This passage is actually quoted here in what we just read. But let's read it from Zechariah 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will be extended from sea to sea. Now, this passage we have quoted here in Luke 19, but there's a second verse in these two verses that seems a little foreign, especially if you're a Jew in the first century. You're expecting your Messiah, yeah, okay, he's going to come on a donkey, but then what, what does it say he's going to do? Can you put that second verse on there one more time, actually? I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will be extended from sea to sea. So this first century Jewish person, they're not expecting a man to come and die, they're expecting this Messiah, whoever he might be, to come and establish his kingdom. They're currently being oppressed and persecuted by the Roman Empire, and they are wanting a literal deliverance from Rome. And they're expecting a kingly Messiah to come and save them from their oppressors, to deliver them the same way that God delivered uh, through Moses, the, Egypt, the Israelites from Egypt. That is what they're expecting in this moment. Another verse that we want to read is Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. This is one that we read around Christmas a lot. It says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it. In this passage, the same thing is described, that this king is going to come and the increase of his government will know no end. It will grow. It will get better. It will get stronger. The Roman Empire, which is taking over the world, this Messiah is going to come and end their brutality. He's going to overthrow them. He's going to put them to rest. And his kingdom which is established on righteousness and peace is going to be established and that peace and that righteousness will reign throughout the earth. The glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what the Jews were expecting. 
and they were expecting it in that time. They didn't think it was going to come 2,000, 3,000 years later. They were expecting it right then. This, if this is the Messiah, that's what he's going to do. There's one more verse. The third verse is Daniel 7, 13 and 14. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So if this is the Messiah, his kingdom is going to be established over Rome and it will never be destroyed. This is what the Jewish people in that time were thinking. And this is important because the Jews were being very oppressed. In fact, that oppression was comparable to the way the Egyptians oppressed the Jews in, uh, in the book of uh, Exodus. It was comparable to that type of oppression. And so they are in a desperate place seeking for that type of deliverance. And when you think about this, and then you get to this passage in Luke 19, I, I ask myself three questions. So Jesus comes, right? Where was Jesus going? During this moment, that's the first question I asked. Where was Jesus going? The second question is, how did Jesus intend to get there? And the third question is, how did Jesus respond during this time? Not only respond to the people who were against him, but how did, what was his heart response like during this time? So the first one is, where was Jesus going? During this time, obviously, as we just described, the Jews thought that Jesus would come remove Pilate, remove Herod, and take over the Roman Empire. Deliver them, establish his kingdom, give them peace. The promise for Israel is that their inheritance would be as much as the sand on the seashores. That was the promise, the promise they were waiting to be completed. But Jesus' is, intent was a little bit different in this moment. While the oppression of the Roman Empire was bad, in fact, really bad, Jesus knew that the oppression of sin, the oppression of death that plagued humanity was much worse than the oppression of the Roman Empire. So Jesus, his intent and where he was going in this moment was not just to deliver Israel from Roman oppression, but he was on his way to deliver humanity from the oppression of death, from the oppression of sin. That was the course that Jesus was on as he comes into Jerusalem for this holy week. He sees Rome, and of course, Rome is bad. But there's something so much worse that you are unaware of, is what he's trying to say. And it's that you are plagued by sin, and I care about your soul. I care about eternal life. I care about those things more than this physical oppression, which is actually so small in the moment. But the second thing is, is how did Jesus intend to get there? So this is where he's going. He's on his way to deliver humanity, not just Israel. He's on his way to de deliver humanity from sin and from oppression and from death. But how did he intend to get there? Now, of course, the Jews, they thought that their Messiah would get there through power, through being strong. That's what a king does. A king is strong. A king displays strength. 
A king displays power, similar to the passages that we just read. And our king does do that. But first, this king, he turned the wisdom of the world upside down. And he's not going to first get there through displaying his power. He's going to first get there through mercy. He's going to first get there through being mocked. As we read in Luke 18, it says that he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked. He will be shamefully treated and he will be spit upon. How does Jesus get to the place that he's going? He surrenders himself to these people who don't even know who he is. He lets them mock him. He lets them shame him. He lets them spit on him. I've never had anyone spit on me, but the thought of that just sounds disgusting. But Jesus says, if they wanna spit on me, they can spit on me. And he surrenders himself to that type of suffering, that type of persecution. He lives 33 years of being misunderstood like this. Of course, it climaxed at the end of his life, but for 33 years, he's living on the earth, being completely misunderstood. Then these last three years of his ministry, he's sharing with his disciples who he is, why he's come, and even them, his closest friends, still do not understand. This is an expression of his humility. Now, the third question I ask is, how did Jesus respond? Now, in the moment here, he actually gives a literal response. In verse 39, the Pharisees look at him as the people are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees look at him and they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples because the Pharisees are in complete disbelief that this is who this man is. There's no way he can be that Messiah. Rebuke them. This is heresy. And Jesus says, listen, I tell you, if they were silent, the rocks would cry out because creation exists. Creation was made to worship Jesus. And so if they were silent, if they weren't praising me, believe it, the rocks all of creation would begin praising me because that is who I am. I am the God that is worthy of praise. That's what he tells them in that, in that moment. So he tells them, listen, if they weren't, the rocks would cry out. But there's also a deeper way that he responds or a more broad understanding of his response. And that's his meekness. What I see is his meekness. Throughout Jesus's life, what I think is one of the most beautiful attributes and character traits of Jesus, it is his meekness. He has all power in heaven and on earth. Everyone has misunderstood who he is and he does nothing about it. He can choose right now to correct what they've misunderstood, to defend himself. Not even defend himself in the wrong way, it's actually defending himself in the right way because they're wrong. And that's our human nature. When we're misunderstood, what do we want to do? We want to correct what people have misunderstood about us. We want to defend ourselves and maybe cast blame on another. But Jesus, in complete meekness, decides to restrain that power that he possesses. Again, all power. He restrains that power 
and displays his meekness and says, I'm not gonna correct this story. I'm not gonna narrate it differently. Maybe they have misunderstood, but I'm not gonna change that for them right now. He steps back and shows his meekness, his tenderness. And then after this moment, he actually draws closer to Jerusalem, it says in verse 41. And he responds in a deeper way. In verse 41, he draws closer to Jerusalem. And he says, that it lo- he looks to the city and he weeps. He weeps. This is on the same day, on Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is a glorious day. We welcome the king in. But later, on that same day, he draws close to the city and he weeps. Why would Jesus be weeping on this day? Jesus is crying tears of sorrow. He's not weeping because he thinks that God's plan is compromised. God's plan cannot be compromised. He doesn't think that these humans are gonna affect what God has put together, this elaborate, beautiful plan, and God has put it together to deliver us from sin. He doesn't think that humans are gonna compromise that plan. That's not why he's weeping. He's weeping because of sorrow. He's weeping because he realizes that all of these people, even his closest friends, they've missed him. They've missed the hour of their visitation. Or they've missed, as it just said, what we read in verse 44, they missed God coming to them. And right after that, he actually prophesies and he says, you know what? You're gonna be surrounded. This city's gonna be surrounded. It's gonna be camped around. Let me just read it. He says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will, be set, will set up a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side and tear down the city. And you know what happened 40 years after that? The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So the Jews are waiting for him not to destroy Jerusalem or not to see Jerusalem destroyed. They're waiting for him to make this city great, make it beautiful, make it rule the world. But he says, you know what's gonna happen? That's not gonna happen right now. It will one day, but not right now. What's gonna happen is you're gonna be surrounded and this city is gonna be tread upon and taken over by the Romans. And 40 years later in 70 AD, we see that happening. So Jesus in this moment, he's weeping as he looks at the city of Jerusalem, crying tears of sorrow because they missed him. And he's pained at the fact that they have not seen this Messiah. He's also crying tears because he's realizing the sacrifice that he's getting ready to have to make. He's realizing it's becoming closer and closer and he's realizing that yes, what God has intended is about to come to pass. I will have to give my life and surrender myself to be mocked, to be shamed and to be spat upon. And that is why Jesus is weeping here as he looks upon Jerusalem. He feels that pain. When I read that, it makes me think of a few things. I think that in this passage, we have an invitation to look upon God with a type of adoration that we may not have thought of before, may not have seen before. Maybe you haven't seen God in this way before as the God who weeps. Last time I preached, I didn't even intend this, but last time I preached, I actually talked on Mary of Bethany and the way that Jesus relates to Mary, Mary of Bethany, Martha, and Lazarus, some of his closest friends. And 
Austin actually sang this song, one of my favorite songs because it's one of my favorite stories. Jesus shows up after Lazarus has died, knowing that he's gonna raise him from the dead. He shows up and he sees the pain that Martha and Mary are feeling and he steps away and, he, and that's where we see the passage, Jesus wept. Jesus didn't weep because Lazarus died. He knew he was gonna raise Lazarus from the dead, but he wept because he saw the pain that Mary and Martha were feeling. He was moved by their pain and by their suffering and by their anguish. Yes, it, it was sad that Lazarus died, but Jesus knew Lazarus is gonna raise from the dead. He wasn't worried about that. He didn't think he wasn't gonna be able to do that. But he was moved because Martha and Mary were suffering during these moments. And it's in moments of tears and moments of pain that actually lead us to resurrection power. This is the week that Jesus dies and the week that Jesus is raised from the dead. But as he enters this week, he actually enters with tears. He actually enters with weeping, but he ends this week with resurrection power. When he entered the week with Lazarus, he entered with tears, he wept, but it ended in resurrection power. It ended in raising Lazarus from the dead. And sometimes, sometimes, we have to engage with God in that way. We have to engage with God and feel that pain. The tears don't show that God's out of control. It actually shows that Jesus is as much of an emotionally complex person as you and I are. And he feels pain and grief and sorrow in the way that you and I feel. And that's not wrong to feel those things. In fact, there's an invitation to feel those things. There's an invitation to be tenderly moved by those things. As some of you know, my family and I, we've lived overseas and um, we actually went back to where we have lived for uh, a few years and in February, we went back for a month. And while we were there, uh, we live in a, a large city and many times in large cities, you probably know if you've been in downtown Atlanta and whatnot, but there's a lot of, impoverished people. There's a lot of beggars. There's a lot of panhandlers and things like that. And where we live, that's the same. There's a lot of refugees, a lot of homeless people, a lot more than you could even imagine. And so right after we, you know, we've, we've been gone for a year. We've been back here in the States for a year. But when we went back in February, right when we got there, we went, we went out for a walk with our family. And as we're walking, we start to see some of these beggars. And we start to see some of these, uh, you know, refugees that, you know, they're asking us for money. They're asking us for all this stuff. And I'm just going to be honest with you. Unfortunately, I'm usually the guy that when that happens, I'm like, okay, what do they really want? What are they, what are they really asking me for? Should I be skeptical? Like, I'm usually the guy that tries to, tries to think, okay, this, eh, maybe we shouldn't give them money. Maybe they're going to go do the wrong thing or something like that, Right. And I, I understand that. I mean, I'm that guy. I, I'm, I'm honest. I'm that guy. But after we did all these things, we gave a few people money and all this stuff, but we get back to the house and my wife starts talking. And, and whenever my wife talks, it's, um, it's hard for me because she's always, she's, she's always right. And I feel convicted by the Holy Spirit, but she starts talking and, and she says, she, she actually starts crying before she start, starts talking. And she says, whenever I go out and I see things like that, it's always a barometer for me to check my heart. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, don't say that. 
you know, I had just been out there and I was like, well, I don't know if we should give them money. What are they going to do with them money? You know? But she says, no, it's a barometer for me to check my heart. And if I'm willing to show mercy, if I'm willing to be moved by someone else's pain, because in reality, I understand, again, I'm the one who thinks that way. What do they really want? All this stuff. But at the end of the day, when we come to the throne of God, he's not gonna look at us and ask, did you, when they asked you for money, did you figure out their schemes? Did you figure out like how they were trying to get, did you give them the best thing possible? That's not what he's gonna ask us. He's gonna ask us, did you show mercy? to those people. I, it doesn't matter what they wanted. In the same way Jesus, in his life, suffered complete misunderstanding, the question was, did he show mercy? He showed mercy. He was completely misunderstood. Of course, everyone was looking to him for so many different things and thought he was completely wrong or whatever, but he did not defend himself. He instead showed them mercy. And that, when I read this passage, I feel that type of invitation to engage with God in that way, to be tenderly moved the way that Jesus was tenderly moved in this passage. So as we transition here, I'm gonna invite Austin and, and the worship team up. And we're gonna, we are gonna have a time of ministry and as we do on this Palm Sunday, I wanna encourage you to ask the Lord to speak to you. Maybe you have not thought of God as the one who weeps. But maybe today, what if we did not miss him the way maybe the Jews missed him? What if we were willing to open up our hearts and receive from him and welcome him in the way that he really is and engage with him in the way that he really is? What if we ask him to move our hearts tenderly, to feel that type of tears, to feel those type of tears, to feel what Jesus was feeling? And then at the same time, what if we, step out and worship and adore this God who weeps because of who he is. So I wanna invite you to stand. I'm gonna pray. If you feel you don't have to stand, you can sit however you feel like you wanna engage with God. The ministry teams are gonna come up for us. And as you feel led to respond, however you want to respond, you can do that. So I'll pray for us, Lord. We love you, God. And on this Palm Sunday, Lord, our prayer is that we would welcome you as you really are. Lord, that we would engage with you in this way. If we haven't felt moved tenderly by someone else's pain, the way that you were moved tenderly, God, I ask, would you move us? Because we wanna be like you. We wanna be conformed to your image. Holy Spirit, would you come and speak to us this morning? Would you come and move upon us this morning? So we welcome your presence, God. We welcome the one who is the King, the one who is the Lord. Come and touch us in Jesus' name.